Hello, welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science, ones that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink, and I'll be your guide today. But before we get into our discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel. Click on the bell icon at Reasons to Believe so you can be informed of our new videos. You can learn more at reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, it's good to have you here today. I'm, I think I'm looking forward to our discussion today. <laughs> yeah. I may not have a choice in that, but no, why don't you go ahead and introduce our discussion today? Yeah, yeah. well, to maybe ease us into, into the, the discussion, uh, I'm going to test your pop culture acumen, and maybe this isn't quite fair because, you know, you're younger than me, and so this is a, a reference to the early 1970s. Okay. But uh, uh, I'm sh- I don't know if you are familiar with the... Uh, comedian Flip Wilson. I've heard the name. He was one of those that it's like, I heard the name, but it was kind of on his way out. And so I, I mean, yeah. I know that he was pretty funny. I've seen a few shows where he showed up, but I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't identify anything that he did exactly. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I guess I'm old enough to, to actually have watched the Flip Wilson show, okay. which was on air from 1970 to 1974. So I would have been uh, between seven and eleven at okay. that time, so I, I remember, you know, him and um, his show was quite popular, mm-hmm. and he had these several characters that he created, uh, okay. right? That were different personas, and one of them is shown here, where he would dress and drag uh-huh. and be Geraldine Jones, right? Okay. And so she was an interesting character, a fun character, who you know, was morally questionable in terms of how she lived her life, okay. had a, a boyfriend named Killer, but was, you know, quite flirtatious. And 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 she had a number of signature lines that actually became things that we would say as kids, oh, really? you know, to one another and things like that. Like, you know, what you see is what you get. Maybe you've heard that before or... Well, I always thought almost Windows came out with that. But, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I actually have heard that one. So Yeah, what you see is what you get. Um uh, so, you know, uh, sometimes you're hot, sometimes you're not, okay. something like that. And then the last one was the devil made me do it. Okay. So when she was caught in some kind of morally questionable situation, her excuse was, well, the devil made me do it, right? Okay. And so this is actually, the, I think, the cover of an album of his, a comedy album, The Devil Made Me Buy This Dress. And, and I got to say, that's one thing that I find sad that's not around is, you know, I remember, you know, occasionally just having the, the uh, not that the 30, no, it was the 33 records. You'd yeah. sit there and you just listen to the comedy routines and it, yeah. that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, so. yeah. I had a few comedy albums in my collection, you know, uh, but and I, I don't know that I would want to admit which ones that, were in my uh, collection, okay. but, but I had a few comedy albums. But, um, but you know, the idea here is that, you know, according to Geraldine Jones, there's certain behavior that she engaged in that was beyond her control. Mm-hmm. Right. But there were these other forces that were influencing the choices she made, the actions that she took, mm-hmm. you know, uh, her behavior and that's really a, a wonderful pop cultural reference to an idea called determinism, right? Right, okay. You know, and, uh, you know, maybe a more most extreme version of determinism is this idea that at the very point the universe had its beginning, uh, that because of the laws of physics and the distribution of matter and energy, the entire future of the universe was set, mm-hmm. right? You know, because it's all basically 
the laws of physics operating on matter and energy. And once you have that initial distribution in place, mm -hmm. everything that happens is uh, ultimately a reflection of those initial conditions. Uh, oddly enough, that's one of the things that attracted me to physics in the first place is, you know, I mean, one, pretty good at math. And so, you know, I, I could I could handle that pretty easily. But, you know, just this recognition that you're looking and it's like, okay, I've got a ball and I've got the equation. It's like, I know exactly where it's been and I know exactly where it's yeah. going. It's that, that determinism is mm -hmm. what is really attractive to me about physics at some yeah. level. So Yeah. And, and, but, you know, taken to an extreme mm -hmm. and, and I think we all agree that, that there is a determinism to the universe, mm -hmm. right? But taken to an extreme, the conclusion would be, well, maybe even the decisions that we make, even mm -hmm. the choices we make, the behaviors we engage in, the actions that we take are ultimately all predetermined. Right. Particularly if it's a materialistic universe, right? Where if all the, that constitutes reality is the physical material universe, then ultimately everything that we decide to do is, you know, mm -hmm. really, again, predetermined by the laws of nature, by the laws of physics. Uh, and that initial distribution of matter. And in the 1980s, this idea of determinism really moved strongly into the biological arena, particularly into neuroscience, where people uh, claimed that there was now experimental evidence that mm. we actually didn't have free will, that it oh, was really subconscious activities in our brain that were making the decisions before we had actually thought we had decided mm -hmm. what we were going to do, meaning that free will was essentially an illusion and something that was after the fact where we had a, a conscious awareness and we were observing the, our subconscious brain hmm. and then acting or assuming that we were making choices when in fact we weren't. And uh, this, the experiment that kicked it off is shown here uh, in a diagram, or at least mm -hmm. this is a, a variation of that experiment uh, done by a neuroscientist named Benjamin Leibitt. Okay. And since that time, this was in the early 80s, there's been 40 years of Leibitt-like <coughs> experiments done mm -hmm. by neuroscientists, with different variations. And the, the, the experiment was, it was shown, as it's shown here, was that the test subject was... Uh, told to go ahead and raise your fingers, but you can raise your fingers anytime you want. Mm -hmm. But before you raise your, when you decide to raise your fingers, just let the, the researcher know that you've decided to raise your fingers okay. and then go ahead and carry out that action. Right. And they were, the, the test subjects were, uh, had EEG caps on that could detect electrical activity in the brain. And what they noted is that about 300 milliseconds, and this is a, a pretty constant uh, mm -hmm. value, about 300 milliseconds before the test subject declared that they had made a decision to raise their fingers, there was already electrical activity in mm -hmm. the brain, and then they, they went ahead and, and, and raised their fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this particular experiment and these Libet-like experiments have been soundly criticized. Mm -hmm. People have criticized the experimental design, researcher bias, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, you know the, the measurement techniques, anything you can imagine, this work has been criticized. Uh, but it, it – um, so it is a highly controversial result among neuroscientists. So what, what makes it 
if I could, what makes it controversial? Are you aware? Because it seems like that's a pretty straightforward measurement. Right. And the fact that there's this kind of universal, you know, kind of universal time frame lends credence to there's something going on. Yeah. There. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something about it being artificial. You know, there's a, I, I've read articles mm -hmm. in, in discussions about problems with the experiment and it, it's just legion, right? Okay. In terms of the details of the experimental design, how the measurements were made, the artificiality of the situation. But people have done all kinds of different variations mm -hmm. of the Libet experiment, um, including different types of choices that the, mm -hmm. the individual would make or uh, how they were measuring the electrical activity in the brain from EEG caps to mm -hmm. functional magnetic resonance imaging to measuring the activity of individual neurons. Right. And so in what one of the interesting studies using, I believe, functional magnetic resonance imaging was the capacity to detect electrical activity in the brain and patterns of activity. Mm -hmm. And depending on the choice that the subject made, there would be different electrical activities in the brain, different okay. patterns. And they could actually predict what choice the test subject was going to make from those patterns before they actually were cognizant of making that decision. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is that this is a controversial experiment, but I think if so, you... So if, if I can, it seems like there's, yes, there's controversy surrounding this, but there is something going on there that needs to be explained one way or the other. Right. The okay. results right. The results are, are pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you are the, a, a determinist and you would say, I don't think there's such a thing as free will, these are the kind of results you would expect to mm -hmm. see, where it looks like there's subconscious activity in the brain that's already making that predetermination mm -hmm. as to what the test subject is going to choose. Now, if you hold to the view that there is free will, you would argue that, look, this is this experiment is, is a flawed design. And so it really is, again, kind of a toss-up. So um, you can't... So I, I guess why... So why does this eliminate free will? Because this, to me, sounds like there are certain things where yes, you can, or, or there, at least there's activity going on before you're conscious of right. that are indicative of what's going on. But that doesn't mean that everything you do has this pattern to it. Exactly. Okay. And, and, right. and, and those are the types of, okay. you know, the, the types of criticisms that are leveled, right? Okay. Is it, you know, is this really measuring what we think it's measuring, mm -hmm. right? How much, you know, is that because these are artificial situations, is this really reflective of mm -hmm. what we do when we actually are making making decisions because you're giving people a choice versus kind of open-ended scenarios, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, just because you see this, does this actually, you know, obviate uh, the existence of free will? Right. So, well, and, and part of what I find interesting and what I, you know, a question I'll ask at some point is, uh, you know, we were going through a study in one of our Sunday school classes and they were talking about how, you know, before we're conscious, there are decisions that you've already made, which, you know, what the, the point this person was talking about is like, these are the character you've developed. And so yeah. it's, it's not like these predetermined things are on, are, are set in stone or determined by things. You can actually influence how they right. go. And so, yeah, that's a really good point. And, and in fact, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, right. yeah. Because that's actually one of the arguments that is, have been made scientifically for the existence of free will okay. is that, yeah, that there are certain tasks that uh, where you can train your brain mm -hmm. 
uh, to do what is contrary to what it ought to it, it it would do automatically. Gotcha. Right now, here we are. Um, you know, forty years later, mm-hmm. and uh, just recently, a book was published by a, a well-known neuroscientist by the name of Robert Sapolsky called Determined, where he makes a much more comprehensive argument for uh, for the idea that free will is an illusion, mm-hmm. right? That, that where he makes a, a, a very strong argument for determinism. And uh, okay, I, I, there's just part of me that that is a ridiculous statement on its surface. And I'm assuming he's got more sophistication than that because yep. why do you make a strong argument that things are determined? Mm, right. <laughs> you know, it, it, at the on the face of it, it's ludicrous, but I'm assuming he's got more sophistication yeah. than that, correct? Well, I mean, yeah. It, and, 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 you know, one of the, the point that you're making there is that you, when you start to declare there's no such thing as free will, right, and you that's the conclusion you draw, you know, you're you're beginning to tap into the idea of an absurdity, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Did you really, you know, (laughs) come to that decision or was it something that was predetermined, meaning is there really, is there really Mm -hmm. a valid truth or, you know, is science even possible? But, you know, but Sapolsky actually does a very interesting thing in, in this book where he says, okay, look, we've got the the results from the Leibniz experiment. We know 300 milliseconds, there's neuronal activity going mm-hmm. on. But he said, but there's also stuff happening a few minutes before that, mm-hmm. a few hours before that. There's things that have happened during the course of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. There's things that have happened, you know, uh, w- that you inherit from your parents. There mm-hmm. are things that have happened in evolutionary history. And so he argues that when you start to daisy chain all these things together, what you have is this coherent weight of evidence argument that nothing that we decide is ultimately of our own volition. Everything has been predetermined. And so here's here's the... Is that just... A, it seems to me that's a large extrapolation because you can measure the Leibniz-type experiments... It's not clear to me you've made these other connections in well, there. Well, I've, I've got a passage from the book okay. uh, that, that essentially presents the argument. Okay. And, and, I, and every point that he's making is scientifically valid. Okay. Right? And so he's stringing it together in what I think to be, on the surface, at least to be a reasonably compelling argument for, for biological determinism. So okay. let's, let's just look at his argument. Very good. He said, uh, you observe a behavior and can answer why it occurred because of the action of neurons in this or that part of the brain in the preceding second. So this is the the Leibniz experiment. And in the seconds to minutes before, those neurons were activated by a thought, a memory, an emotion, or sensory stimuli. And in the hours to days before that behavior occurred, the hormones in your circulation shaped those thoughts, memories, and emotions, altered how sensitive your brain was to particular environmental stimuli. And in the preceding months to years, experience in environmental environment changed how those neurons function, mm-hmm. causing some to sprout new connections and become more excitable and causing the opposite in others. And from there, we hurtle back decades in identifying antecedent causes. Explaining why that behavior occurred requires recognizing how during adolescence, a key brain region was still being constructed, shaped by socialization and acculturation. Further back, there's childhood experience shaping the construction of your brain with the same then applying to your fetal environment. 
Moving further back, we have to factor in the genes you inherited and their effects on behavior. But we're not done yet. That's because everything in your childhood, starting with how you were mothered within the minutes of birth, was influenced by culture, which means centuries of ecological factors that influenced what kind of culture your ancestors invented and by the evolutionary pressures that molded the species you belong to. Why did that behavior occur? Because of the biological and environmental interactions all the way down. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are nothing more than or less than the cumulative biological and environmental luck over which we had no control that has brought us to any moment. So it's a a pretty compelling argument where every point that he's making is demonstrably true scientifically. These are everything that he's catenating together are well-established scientific facts. Mm -hmm. And so when you bring it all together, you know, kind of as a weight of evidence, this is a pretty compelling argument Mm -hmm. that at least for biological determinism and really raises, I think, questions, you know, is free will an illusion Mm -hmm. or is it, is, is it, you know, a reality? Now, it, it kind of strikes me, his argument, it's not that it has to be this way, but it's a reasonable argument that it is this way. Yes. And so, on that basis, we need to deal with that argument then because it's reasonable whether it's yeah. the only way to look at it or not. So. Exactly. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that what Sapolsky, of course, is operating on are assumptions. And mm-hmm. you were mentioning before we went on air about how important worldview is, mm-hmm. right? And so he has a worldview. He's a materialist, right? And so he's assuming that all there is is the physical material universe. So you already are in a framework where determinism becomes, you know, right, yeah. you know, becomes almost a given, right, in, in that environment mm-hmm. and, or in that worldview. And he also is equating the brain to the mind, where he's arguing that there's nothing immaterial about us as human mm-hmm. beings. It, it's strictly a materialistic perspective. So, you know, based on that worldview, what he's arguing for even makes more sense, right? The worldview in a sense, reinforces his interpretation of the data, right? Yeah. I mean, it's given his worldview, the argument he made is, coheres very well, and it's it's a compelling in that you need to at least recognize it and deal with it. I don't know yeah. that it's compelling and that it forces you to believe it, but it is a compelling right. argument that you need to wrestle with. It, he, given his worldview, he's not being irrational. No, not I mean, at By all. any stretch. Yeah. Not at all. And, you know, and, and, you know, this is a pretty sophisticated, I mean, it's a pop written for a, a, a popular level audience, but it's a pretty sophisticated right. argument that he's bringing to bear that is, again, built upon quite a bit of scientific studies that, that establish the credibility of each point that he's making. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting to me is, I mean, eventually we're going to hopefully get to the point where we present a Christian model Mm -hmm. for how we can make sense of all that we're talking about, how we can make sense of theology and the neuroscience and behavioral genetics and psychology and, you know, evolutionary, our -hmm. evolutionary history and all that, how we can make sense of that in a Christian framework that acknowledges the science and, you know, also is theologically sound. But before we do that, I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the arguments that people make for free will who share the worldview of Sapolsky. Uh So just because Sapolsky is making this argument doesn't mean 
that people who share his worldview buy it. Right. So, for example, I've got a couple of books, or actually three books here. Uh, one's written by a philosopher called Free Will, where he's arguing that th- there are that the arguments against free will are not sound arguments. That mm-hmm. that there's there are ways around it. This is a book just published. Um, uh, a few months before Sapolsky's book mm-hmm. by Kevin Mitchell, who's a neuroscientist called Free Agents, where he argues for, for a scientific basis for free will from a materialistic framework. Okay. And this is a book by William Clem, uh, making a scientific case for conscious agency and free will, who also is making an argument for free will based on a materialistic worldview. So the point is, is that there are counter arguments to Sapolsky Within the within the same worldview, and, and and again we're we'll get to a kind of a Christian model after we unpack some of this. Stuff. Yeah, so I, I guess to me the two questions that stand out, and you know I think you're going to address them at some level is if matter is all there is, um, you know we can I mean even with quantum mechanics, I mean the Schrodinger wave occasion is still deterministic. It's not probabilistic in any sort of fashion. How we make measurements is where weird things come in. But if matter is all there is, what's the mechanism by which you get something that doesn't depend on the matter if matter is all there is? That that seems, that's that's one of the questions. And if it is true that somehow matter determines everything, how do you explain that we're having conversations like this? Is, yeah. is it or and it's even I guess a little. My question is a little more fatalistic. Of if I buy his case that yes, everything is just a mm-hmm. consequence of the biological luck and the evolutionary luck. Yeah. What do I do with that? I, it's like yeah. I just do whatever's good in the moment. I, there's. It seems like there's no reasonable outcome of. I need to think about things. I need to be careful. It, it's it's just going to all kind of unfold no matter what. Yep. Yep. And so th- those are the two, I guess, to me, the pressing questions in my mind. Yeah. And and we'll we'll get to those. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to those because and those are actually the right questions to ask. Now, I've surveyed a number of uh, ar- arguments for free will, <laughs> and there's some that I personally don't find very convincing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, I'll, I'll run through some of those just because people are probably going to hear these arguments. And one of them is quantum indeterminacy, and you've already made an allusion to that, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole idea here is that while we do live in a deterministic universe at the quantum level, there's indeterminism, you know, based on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so the, a, a good example uh, for people that are not familiar with quantum indeterminacy would be a having a coin that can exist in two states, heads or tail, right? Mm-hmm. Tails, right? So that's our quantum system. There's two possible states, right? Right. And, and of course, if you take the coin and put it on the edge and flick it and it spins around, we don't know is the coin heads or tails. It's in a sense both. That's the superposition mm-hmm. of, of quantum states. And it's only when you actually make a measurement or when you interact with that system by you know, hitting the coin and it falls to the table. If you cover it up, you now you've interfered with the system. You force it into a state. Mm-hmm. You don't know what that state is till you lift up your mm-hmm. hand and you make make the measurement. It's heads or it's tails. But whether it's heads or tails is essentially 
indeterministic. You don't know what it is. You just know it's going to be one of those two states. Yeah. And the only way you know is to make a measurement on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that measurement is actually influencing what state it, it winds up going into, right? right? So the idea here is that because at the, you know, the, at the most fundamental level of the universe, there's indeterminism, you know, that, that maybe free will is somehow arising out of quantum indeterminacy. Now, there's a number of problems with that. <laughs> yeah. one, of, one of them you already mentioned, right? Yeah, it's indeterministic, but ultimately there's constraints on that indeterminism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the, even though there's quantum indeterminacy, th- there's still, that's still determining <laughs> the outcome of behavior. There's mm-hmm. nothing that's free if somehow quantum indeterminacy is at work. There's nothing really free in your choices. Mm-hmm. You're constrained by by the, the, the quantum indeterminacy. Yeah, right. well, and, and something somebody pointed out to me, it's like the Schroden, the wave equation is not indeterminate. It's deterministic still. You know, the, the question is, how do you translate from the, the calculation, the mathematics to the, the world that you measure? That's, you know, there's some unknownness about that, but I think a lot of that is ultimately probably related to the fact that we have this idea we can look at isolated systems. Yeah. And you have to once you include your detectors and everything in there, all of that indeterminacy, it will become deterministic, if you will. So yeah. I, I agree with you. I don't think that's that yeah. people have raised that, and I'm like, I don't think that's a good yeah, way. Yeah, well, it, so. and, and you know, kind of adding to that argument. And speaking of Schrodinger, Schrodinger wrote, wrote a famous book in the ni- early 1950s called "What Is Life." Mm-hmm where he's speculating on the nature of living systems from the perspective of a quantum physicist. And one of the points that he makes is that there's a lower bound to the size of living systems, mm-hmm. that living systems can't go below a, a certain level of size because below that level, now the processes are going to be influenced by quantum indeterminacy. It's mm-hmm. only when you have a large enough system where there's this statistical behavior right that you actually have a deterministic outcome and that life needs that in order for metabolism Mm -hmm. to take place. And so the the analogy would be uh, uh, an element, a chemical element that undergoes radioactive decay. If you have a a whole bunch of those atoms, you don't know which one is going to undergo decay, Mm -hmm. but you know that if it's a large enough number that half of them Mm -hmm. will undergo decay during the, uh, you know, over the course of the half-life. Mm-hmm. So it's a deterministic, predictable behavior, even mm-hmm. though the system is indeterminate. Right. And when you're dealing with neurons, you're dealing with systems that are so large that the quantum indeterminacy is not going to be right. a viable mechanism. So, Well, and, and even if there is this quantum indeterminacy, there's, not, uh, there's still no mechanism for the thoughts of my mind influencing what the outcome is going to be. Uh, right. You know, so I, I, I will... I can grant you the quantum indeterminacy. That t- that doesn't lead to the idea that there's free will in there. Right. I, you know, it's, it's, I agree with you. It's a bad argument or unconvincing argument. Okay. So now the next two are kind of interrelated, mm-hmm. dealing with chaos theory and complexity of causality. And the argument there is that, look, cause and effect relationships are in this nexus of <laughs> interactions. And because of the complexity, we really don't know what the outcome is going to be. For, from our perspective, many times the outcome appears to be unpredictable mm-hmm. or it appears to be random. And so maybe this is the place where free will mm-hmm. arises. The problem is 
is that just because something is unpredictable or random doesn't mean it's not deterministic. Right. Yeah. So, so this doesn't really create a mechanism for free will, but this is, mm-hmm. again, one of those arguments. The last one is, is kind of a philosophical slash scientific argument, and it's a pragmatic argument mm-hmm. where I've read philosophers who said, look, free will is an illusion, but we've got to act as if it's a real thing because if we don't, there's no morality. There can be no legal system that would organize society. There are these studies done by psychologists showing that if people think that they don't have free will, they just basically behave like jerks, right? <laughs> okay. they're, they're less compassionate. They're less generous. Mm-hmm. They just do bad things, <laughs> right? And so his argument is that, look, we if we're <coughs> going to have a any semblance of society and order in the world, we've got to act like free will free will is real. Problem is, just because I don't like an idea doesn't mean it's not true, right? Yeah. Well, there's a part, I I think that sort of argument, I could make an argument is that it's an apologetic for a a Christian worldview. Yes. Not because it means free will exists, but when you ask what actually works in the world, it aligns with what Christianity says the world works. Yes. You know, and so... But yeah. that, that's, I agree. It's not, right. it's not one that says, oh, because pragmatically it works, therefore free will right. exists. I, I agree that it's yeah. not a good... Well, you know, and, and philosophers call these kinds of ideas dangerous ideas because the implications are so far reaching and mm-hmm. are so revolutionary that th- the idea is, is dangerous, but it right. doesn't mean an idea isn't true. And so Sapolsky even spends a significant part of the book saying, look... If free will is an illusion, then we really need to think about how we restructure society as a whole, that we can't really blame somebody when they commit, you know, a murder, Uh right? We can't really reward somebody if they do something outstanding because this has all been predetermined. We need to literally restructure society uh, in in accord to the idea that there isn't free will. So that's kind of highlighting the the dangerousness of this idea, which is why as Christians, we can't afford not to engage Yes, because if, if this idea gets, takes hold and becomes pervasive in our culture, it could really be, again, rather disturbing, mm-hmm. right? If, particularly if there are counter arguments or counter, if there's counter evidence to Again, the idea mm-hmm. that there's free will. Now, well, and, and it's interesting. I would argue that there's a pragmatic reason to engage it because I, I just the, the the mix of language is fascinating in there. If free will is an illusion, we need to rethink how we structure society. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Again. So, so where do you think about restructuring society, and where do you say? free will's an illusion. Uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. this is really muddy, muddy, a muddy field just because we're using these meaningful statements in the context of an immeaningful world at some right. level. Right. Yeah, I, I, if we don't engage that, it's very easy for that to take hold. Once that takes hold, I'm not sure how you get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and that leads me to what I think to be convincing arguments. Okay. At least these are from <laughs> convincing for me. One is the absurdity, which you just did a beautiful job of explaining, right? Okay. You know, and, and from a scientific perspective, look, if, again, 
everything is predetermined, then when I look at data, I'm not drawing an, a, a conclusion based on logic or reason, mm-hmm. right? I'm simply looking at the data and I have got a predetermined conclusion that's arising mm-hmm. out of all kinds of other factors. But that would be true for Sapolsky, right? right? Which means there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as science that's mm-hmm. possible, right? You know, and so you wind up in these absurdities, right? right? You know, as, as as you're highlighting, so did I choose to make that that, that decision, or was that right. decision, you know, again a consequence of, um, you know, the deterministic world we live in? Now, these next two are kind of interrelated. Uh, and I think these are actually compelling arguments. One is what we would call introspection or a phenomenological argument, which basically it goes something like this. When I think about my, the decisions that I make, it really does seem like I'm actually making those mm-hmm. decisions exercising free will. When I engage in actions, when I engage in behaviors, mm-hmm. when I make choices, it feels like to me, mm-hmm. on the inside, that I'm I'm actually again making a free will decision, and um, it's interesting because almost everybody who talks about free will, whether they are in the camp where free will is an illusion or free will is real, all bring up this point, right? Okay. Right. That 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 this seems to be how we understand things, and then related to that is this idea of metacognition, which is that not only do we make choices and engage in actions and behaviors, but we think about what we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. We think about thinking, we reason about reasoning. And so this is the uh, the point Kevin Mitchell makes in his book, Free Agents, where he says, humans possess a highly developed set of neural resources devoted precisely to metacognition, introspection, imagination, and conscious cognitive control of our behavior. We think about our thoughts, we reason about our reasons. In fact, much of our waking mental lives is taken up with such introspection. Mm -hmm. And we're not thinking about our own thoughts and reasons, we're often thinking about those of other people. And so, you know, the argument here is that this not only requires conscious awareness, but if we're able to think about our thoughts, if we're able to think about our reasons, it, it means that there must be capacity for free will. Uh, that's an operation, right? Because, you know, we're thinking about what we're thinking. And in in other words, it's almost like we're examining ourselves, right? And and through that examining of ourselves, we have some capacity to control, you know, outcomes. As we think about thinking, as we reason about reasoning, we have some capacity to control uh, our outcomes. Now, this isn't Mitchell's Mm -hmm. ultimate argument, his ultimate argument is interesting. Uh, it's really an evolutionary argument where he says, look, you know, it feels like free will is real, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think about thinking. We have this conscious awareness of ourselves. And, you know, he argues that, look, there's a huge evolutionary advantage to, to being able to exercise free will. If we think that we're exercising free will, but in fact everything is subconsciously determined— there's no evolutionary advantage to that. In fact, it becomes an evolutionary disadvantage. But boy, if we have free will where we can make actual choices, that leads to all kinds of capacities and behaviors that have such an enormous adaptive adva- advantage 
that free will must must be real, right? So it's a it's an evolutionary argument. Now, you can tell by your facial expression, well, you're well, not completely you, buying it, but that's okay. No, I'm trying to get the weight of the argument because to me, it, it, you, if we think we're making decisions, but we really aren't, the idea that we can think about making those, I mean, that's just, if you, adding, once you've got the illusion of free will, Right. I don't see why that doesn't extend up in there. So I'm trying to figure out how, how does right. that counter the argument? I mean, again, because I agree with what he's saying. And so that's why I'm just right. trying to think a little more deeply about well, that. Well, and, and I think the, the, the overall point there is that, look, phenomenologically, it sure feels like we're exercising mm-hmm. free will. And in and, and that, um, that, that, it, that given that this is the phenomena we experience, then there really must be free will. Right. That's mm-hmm. kind of the argument. I, I think it's actually compelling because, um, you know, if if I uh, smell a lemon, I, you know, or I think I smell a lemon, I've got all this experience that says that that, that sensory input that I receive that then is processed by my brain actually is reliable, mm-hmm. right? And so as we'll get to in a minute, uh, there are reasons to think that our, our metacognition is actually reliable and mm-hmm. that there are neural mechanisms that can actually um, raise awareness uh, or, or, or weight uh, kind of our capacity mm-hmm. to select what we focus on, right. you know, uh, those types of things, yeah. right? Well, and I was just thinking about, you know, his comment that the ability to choose or having free will provides this enormous evolutionary advantage which is is interesting because ultimately it's a it's a survival mechanism or an advancement mechanism not a truth seeking mechanism right you know and and so there's there's you may have provided an explanation for why we can choose things but in the very mechanism of choosing things you're almost undermining the idea that we're getting to the reality of what's going on because yeah. why do we trust what's coming up in our minds because all they're doing is giving us an advantage right. to survive it's, it's a different question but anyway. right. yeah yeah well and again you know these are are arguments that are that are out there right. and and again i i I find the argument to have meat to it, right? Mm-hmm. That it maybe it's not the ultimate explanation, or maybe it's not the best argument, but it's an argument that has meat to it, where it's at least a, a plausible. I agree. Uh, yeah. It, at least at least it's plausible. But you know, your suspicion is was well earned. Okay, so uh, the last one I'm going to talk about because we talked about evolutionary advantage is conscious agency and out of conscious agency can arise, again, this capacity for free will. And this is an argument made by William Klum, who is a neuroscientist. I think he's an emeritus now at Texas A&M. But in in this book, he lists, um, I'm not going to go through each of these, Mm -hmm. but a, a a long list of activities that we engage in that require prima facie, require free will. That, okay. okay. And so, uh, for example, let's just look at one of them, learning new complex tasks. Now, there's a lot of things like riding a bike where we can get on a bike and start riding it, um, you know, subconsciously. We ride it automatically. Mm-hmm. But- Correct. But when you were first given a bike, you had no idea how to ride it. It took a while to learn that. And so you had to make some very deliberate decisions strategically in terms of how you were going to learn how to ride the bike, right? 
you know, so, and, and so what often you, those were made by your dad saying, just go. No, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I get your point. There's your argument for determinism, right? <laughs> but, but the idea is that, you know, you, you, you have to force your, your, you have to make deliberate decisions to engage in activities that are not automatic, mm-hmm. that can't be subconscious, right? And that you're, you're making... The only way they become subconscious is that you've done them enough that they become, but you have to learn them in the first right. place so that they can become So that when way. you learn a new task and you master it, now it becomes automatic, but the process of learning that right. task requires okay. free will, right? You've, you're making a de- decision to do this, and it's contrary to anything that you've ever done before. Mm-hmm. And so he goes through each of these items really arguing that, look, free will seems to be part of everything. You know, another thing that's related to that is willpower or what sometimes people call free won't, mm-hmm. right? Is in, in other words, you seem to have this ability. I seem to have this ability. Everybody does to say, this is my urge, but I'm not going to do that, yes. right? <clears throat> right, that this is everything in me says I want to do this, but I, I'm going to veto that. And that requires, again, free will because you are you know, making some kind of conscious decision not to engage in that which is automatic, uh-huh. right? And so, again, he argues there has to be some kind of free will. Now, here's here's how the argument works, and it's, it's a bit complex, um, and I would be lying to say that I fully grasp the argument, but I, I get the big picture. So the idea here would be, let, let's start with, let's say that I... Uh, I smell a lemon, right? Well, what's happening is there, there are odorant molecules in the atmosphere that wind up in my nasal passage. They bind to olfactory receptors in certain mm-hmm. cells, and that triggers electrical activity in my brain. And there's a pattern of, of neural activity that I learn correlates with the smell of lemons, right? Right. So every time I have that smell, there's that, that neural activity. Now, the neural activity isn't the smell. It's just a representation of the, the materials that are out there in the atmosphere. So there's a, a representation in my brain in the form of neural activity that represents the smell of lemons, right? And then, of course, I also have, um, you know, the capacity to see a lemon. And so it's this kind of Ovo, ovoid, you know, yellow thing, right? And, right? and then that triggers a different electrical pattern in my brain. And because of processing power, I'm able to bring those two neural patterns together, recognizing that, hey, there's a full sensory experience that tells me that something is a, a lemon, right? Yeah. Visually and in terms of, you know, the, the olfaction. And so, I, so, so there's, a, there's in, in essence, there's four... Because of prior experience, there is a certain right. set of sensory inputs that when they happen, you associate with a right. lemon. Yeah. And so you, you can describe the sensory inputs and even at some level, okay, there's visual, olfactory, you know, different types of sensory sure. inputs. Whether we can't map that out in the neurons, but nonetheless, somewhere in there, there's that physical right. sensory stimulus that now you say, oh, that's lemon. Yeah. And so, and, and it's in the, the electrical activity of the neurons that... That there's a group of neurons that are interacting with each other in a particular way, setting right. up a neural pattern that is a projection of what's on what's out there in the world. And I can tell the difference between a lemon and a grapefruit because there are different neural patterns. Yes. So that's the idea. So then what Clem is arguing, and there probably are others that have argued this as well, is that 
as our brains got bigger and bigger and bigger, we have greater and greater processing power. And that eventually there becomes in certain regions of the brain, groups of neurons that are actually monitoring the behavior of other neurons in our brain. And, and, And so that ends up leading to a projection in the, that, that group of neurons, the same kind of projections that would happen when we smell a lemon, where now there's neural activity going on mm-hmm. and our brain is monitoring that neural activity with another group of neurons uh, that are giving global patterns mm-hmm. and that when things become complex enough, what we're actually doing is creating a, a projection on those, mm-hmm. those sur- surveillance neurons of our brain itself, right? In the same way that we have a projection of what's on the exterior world in our neural activity. And he argues that this is the the physical basis for consciousness and that once you get the system complex enough, those neurons can actually weigh input uh, from different parts of the brain and it's through weighing that input that essentially free will arises. Now, this is strictly a materialistic model. And it's interesting, I had a conversation with someone who's an AI expert uh, last week and I was telling him about this and he goes, that's that's a little scary because that's exactly how AI people are arguing that consciousness could arise mm-hmm. in AI systems right. and how they, AI systems could actually have free will. So it's an interesting intersection there uh, of ideas. Now, this is you know how Clem uh, describes his argument. He said, uh, there is an I mm-hmm. that is not a ghost, but now he's a materialist. So mm-hmm. he thinks the brain is the mind, right? Uh, is not a ghost, but rather a materialistic process based on a constellation of special nerve impulse signaling patterns in the brain. Consciousness can use the brain's neural machinery to exert executive control. And executive control networks in certain cerebral cortex areas are unique for each individual, partly as a result of the programming produced by a person's lifetime of experience, choices, and decisions, efficient executive networks must have some freedom to decide, plan, and act, even if they are constrained by genetics, contingencies, and interactions of other parts of the brain. So a bunch going on here, but whether you buy Clem's arguments or not, what he's doing is he's presenting a hypothesis for how not only consciousness arises, but how... Uh, that consciousness can actually make uh, free will choices mm-hmm. and decisions. But what's interesting here is that he's acknowledging determinism. He's just arguing that there is a limited determinism in mm-hmm. that we have free will that can rise above that, that those automatic processes, those quote-unquote predetermined outcomes. And as a result of that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it ch- make choices that run ca- contrary to, again, what yeah. what you know the, the the physics of the universe demands. So, point being here is that there are, you know, again these interesting scientific arguments for you know for free will. Some of them, you know, are compelling; others are not. But these again are all in a materialistic framework. So now the fun's going to become <laughs> how do we how do we take all of this treating the scientific data and the scientific insights seriously, but then produce a, a Christian model that can make sense of, of free will in light of, mm-hmm. of the science that's going on. So. Well, that, that's interesting. I mean, I was just sitting there 
you know, to the extent I understand Clem's, your presentation of Clem's idea, it's like, okay, there's kind of a part of your brain that is sensing the external world. And then there's a part of your brain that is sensing the inputs of the brain and deciding. It, yeah. It's seems like we've just kind of kicked the decision, you know, the, the who, what's doing the deciding up a level. I mean, yeah. I, you, we've put another layer of physical right. mechanism in there, but nothing in that discussion says we could do this or we could do this because the behavior of that second level still is controlled by movement emotions, mo movement of atoms, perception of the world. Right. What I do find fascinating about that, if you go back to the to the quote there that he just had, it says, efficient executive networks must have some freedom to decide, plan, and act, even if they're constrained by... That's exactly what I would argue the Christian worldview is, mm -hmm. is that there are these physical mechanisms and a history. I mean, I don't get to control that I am the son of my mom and dad. I have two brothers. Yeah. I was born in the Midwest. There are all these things that mm -hmm. they're just part of me. I had no choice on. At the same level, I can choose to wallow or rejoice. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's like what he's describing is exactly what Christianity says is true. Right. What's unclear to me is why in a naturalist view are we worried about this? Yeah. Why are why are we worried if natural if, if the material world is all there is, why are we worried about trying to explain this? Except that or, or I sorry, ask that question. If naturalism or materialism is all there is, why have we elevated our discussion to asking the question of whether free will exists or not? Because mm -hmm. in a naturalist material world, there is only atoms moving around in motions. Right. Anything else is derivative of that. Right. It seems like, well, we know free will exists. There are scientific reasons to think it exists. So now we have to try and explain it. Yeah. That seems to be borrowed Christian capital. Yeah. That from a Christian, from our experience, we know it makes sense. Yeah. But it doesn't make sense to ask that right. question of materialist right. worldview. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying here that I find his argument compelling. Mm -hmm. What no, I'm I saying is that it's a convincing argument in that there's meat to it. And fair point. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think he's claiming that this is the explanation for consciousness. This is really a hypothesis that could be tested, <clears throat> right? Yeah, no, that's you know, fair. You know. So, uh, but yeah, I guess I'm not maligning him. I just I find right. it interesting that here he says, "Okay, right, the, the material world is all that exists," and we're still wrestling with why do we think? How do we actually have yeah. free will? It, it's it's a question that seems very out of place in a material yeah. world. No, that I, seems very comfortable in a Christian. Yeah, world. and I would agree with it. And it's interesting because Kevin Mitchell, William Clem, you know, you know, are trying to explain free will, <laughs> but they're denying dualism. And they go mm -hmm. out of their way to say, we're not suggesting any kind of dualism. Right. In fact, they are rather disparaging about mm -hmm. a dualism. But it seems to me that what he's getting at is dangerously close to dualism if you are a materialist. And mm -hmm. I think the, the, the model that I'm going to suggest, and I'd be interested in, in hearing your thoughts on this, is I think one that makes the best sense of uh, that really gives a, a a robust explanation for where free will must arise. I think it's all, really only a Christian worldview that gives a satisfying mm -hmm. model. 
Uh, though, again, his ideas are, are very interesting. And the place I would start with the model is this passage from 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where the apostle Paul is blessing uh, the church at Thessalonica. And he said, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul seems to be getting at here is a tripartite nature to mm-hmm. humanity, right? That there's a, a body, soul, and spirit. You know, if we look at the work of uh, Matthew Stanford, who is a neuroscientist, also a Christian, wrote an excellent book called The Biology of Sin that I would recommend to everybody. He uh, <clears throat> is dealing in, to some degree with this idea of determinism. Mm-hmm. Right, where he's looking at studies that show that certain behaviors seem to be predisposed in certain people. Like, for example, mm-hmm. uh, people that are in prison who've committed, you know, heinous, violent crimes have certain, uh, you know, alleles for the genes that code uh, neurotrans- mm-hmm. you know, neuroreceptors that uh, receive neurotransmitters. Right. Certain variants of that tend to correlate with you know, violent behavior. So part of his book is to say, look, there are people that engage in behaviors that we typically call sin, uh, and rightly so, but things are beyond their control, that they're, they're, you know, acting Uh on these impulses. But he says, look, I'm not excusing them. I'm just helping us to develop compassion for those people. But he also proposes a a model that's based on a a tripartite tripartite nature of humans, where he says, instead of the body, there's a brain. Instead of the the soul, he says, there's a mind, and then there's the spirit. Mm-hmm. And he argues that these are all interacting with each other, that the, the brain interacts with the mind, the mind interacts right. with the brain, the mind interacts with the spirit, the spirit interacts with the mind. So here, this allows you to have a deterministic view where you at least hold to limited determinism. Mm -hmm. Look, there are things that happen to you Mm -hmm. that are beyond your control that give you predispositions to things, but that the mind, which would be the source of free will, can actually influence Mm -hmm. the brain, can override impulses, can train new habits, new automatic Mm -hmm. behavior. Likewise, your brain, you know, if you, you know, can also influence your mind in the sense uh-huh. that, you know, those urges, if you give in to them, will make your your will influence how, you know, free will, you know, in your mind is is functioning, and of course the spirit, you know, can influence our mind. So you know, Paul talks yes. about you know renewing the renewing of your mind, where, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, those people that are born again you know, have access to the Holy Spirit, and that can inf- infuse our mind, which then it can infuse and mm-hmm. impact our brain. So there's this the, these this interaction that's going on between these three aspects of our nature. And so in that sense, we could say, look, this limited determinism that, that, that Sapolsky's talking about, we can embrace it, but yet still say there could be free will. And we could even take the model of Clem and others who are saying, look, there are these neural analogs to consciousness there, you know, that, that there may be even a neural basis to some mm-hmm. degree for free will and say that, that if we indeed are agents of free will, because we are integrated, the, our immaterial nature is integrated with our material nature, that, 
you know, there's got to be some physical way to express free will, mm-hmm. some physical way to express right. your <clears throat> thoughts that's going to involve brain, inter- the interaction of our mind with the brain that maybe these neural circuits that Clem is talking about is just simply the hardware through which, you know, the yeah. mind is able to manifest. So I think the point is that, look, we can come up with a Christian model that explains the work of Clem, that mm-hmm. explains, you know, Sapolsky's ideas, right. but yet still retain free will mm-hmm. and still retain a Christian perspective on humanity. So we can produce a theologically you know, responsible and robust model that doesn't deny the science. Right. Well, and, and that's one of the things that strikes me, and, and I'm just kind of becoming more aware of how often this happens, is that, uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I've had a discussion with you that if you look at biological evolution and you just, you know, not, not, not saying, you know, does it align with scripture or not, you know, but just asking the question, okay, what did it look like 30 or 40, 50 years ago? You know, when you were telling me that the, that the multi-regional hypothesis was the dominant view and kind of in the 80s and 90s, it kind of switched over to this out of Africa hypothesis. And I'm like, okay, it's still evolutionary. I mean, all the language is mm-hmm. evolutionary materialistic, but I'm like, that strikes me as a lot the way the Bible described things, you know, that there's this mm-hmm. small population that migrated out, filled the earth. Well, that's kind of basically the model out there. This strikes me kind of in that same class that, you know, for a while it was just materialism, that materialism is all there is, and there's still that language there, but there's also this mm-hmm. other thing that we're wrestling with, which seems to fit very comfortably with the way Christianity has always yeah. described the world. That yes, you know, I mean, one of the things that I f- find f- fascinating, I can't think of the right word about Christianity, is that in nowhere does it say when your conditions are good, you know, enjoy life. God says, rejoice always. You know, mm-hmm. this is Paul writing this in the midst of being tortured mm-hmm. to the highest king because it's not about our circumstances. So right. nothing, I mean, it's not a denial that our circumstances influence what we do. Mm-hmm. But it's a recognition that there's something more than our circumstances, Mm -hmm. which in this sense, materialism would say it's all the circumstances drives what you do. And so I I just find this interesting because it's not the language of Christianity, but the the problems and the things they're grappling with Mm -hmm. are very, you know, these are the categories we would talk about. They Mm -hmm. just use a little bit different language for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting how if you really ultimately are trying to defend free will, you, be, you start to butt up against the, a dualistic nature to humanity mm-hmm. and really uh, things that, again, uh, you know, seem to be much more comfortable in, within a, a Christian worldview mm-hmm. than a materialistic worldview. Yeah. So. I, I mean, I do have to – and I'm, this is a, a question I would, I'll throw out for you here. So there's a part to where as Christians, I mean – I'll be obnoxious in the way I say it. As Christians, we get the easy out. Our free will ultimately comes from being made in God's image. So there's no scientific explanation for it, if you will. It's just ultimately right. it's immaterial. Right. Science is the study of the material. We're not going to be able to do it. There's a part to where these scientists, you know, the materialists, they're wrestling with what's the mechanism? How does it actually work out? They're doing, right. you know, Christians kind of get the 
God did it, therefore I don't have to worry about it approach. Right. They're get, they got to do the hard work of figuring out how it works. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, claim or that that assertion or obnoxious. But, but you know, but at times, you know, I, I see the opposite too, where you know, e- evolution kind of becomes this takes the place of God, if you will. Right? Okay. You know, we don't know how it happened, but ultimately, evolution must have done it. Right? Okay. You know, and so you know, and so I don't know that it necessarily goes one way, I guess, because I've, I've, you know, like, I mean, just an example uh, involving uh, the, you know, the evolutionary origin of eukaryotic cells. Integral to that is the endosymbiont Mm -hmm. hypothesis and the idea that the mitochondria were originally bacteria that were engulfed by some kind of mother cell and it underwent this transformation into an organelle that now serves the cell. but part of the, that model requires the genome of that endosymbiont to be jettisoned mm-hmm. and be a, a incorporated into the nuclear genome, which means now the proteins that the mitochondria need have to be produced in the cytoplasm mm-hmm. and then imported into the protein or into the, into the mitochondria. And that idea of protein import, it, it, the mechanism is unbelievably complex. We still don't fully understand mm-hmm. it. You have to account for that, you know, as part of that model. And when I've read, you know, the top level, you know, models for how protein import takes place, it's things like, well, this is a very hard problem, but somehow it happened, right? Okay. You know, you know, and so it, you almost are just granting, you know, evolution uh, as that that catch-all explanation. So I I see it going both ways, I guess. So maybe that's just a way of saying that there – it seems like everybody at some points has to acknowledge there's mystery, there's challenge, there's hard problems. Right. I think it fits within my worldview. Maybe it's just there's different questions that the Christian would ask as compared to the naturalist would ask. And yeah. So, you know, to, to me as a Christian, the idea that we have free will, I think it's – the, the scientific aspect is not as interesting to me as it is – really the theological question of mm-hmm. how could a sovereign God who's in control of everything grant beings free will of any sort of capacity? I mean, you know, yeah. that, that's whether we're talking about Adam and Eve that might have right. had true free will, whereas we've got this constrained free will. How could that, yeah. I mean, intellectually, I just don't even quite see how those mesh together. But right. yet, nonetheless, scripture talks about both of those being true. And so- right. I think it's a more theologically or philosophically interesting question than the, the me, than the mechanism by which right. it works out. But ultimately, I mean, if I get what you're saying, both of us are kind of saying, well, at yeah. some level it had to work. We're, we, we can't solve that problem, so we're going to work on this yeah. one here. Well, you know, and I think to, to Matthew Stanford's credit, you know, as a neuroscientist and as a Christian, he's seeing these, you know, insights that are coming from neuroscience and he's coming to the table saying, is it possible for me to present a Christian mm-hmm. model that, you know, it, it holds to this idea that in, it, there's a dualistic nature to human beings right? and at the same time treat the scientific data, you know, mm-hmm. with integrity and, and incorporate that into the model. So there's, there is some work that needs to be done. You know, maybe yes. it's a harder explanation to how does consciousness arise just simply from the complexity of neural networks, mm-hmm. and then how does that consciousness exert free will? 
Those are challenging problems, but you know, we still need to recognize that there's insights from neuroscience that we have to be able to engage mm-hmm. as Christians, you know, and in, in produce viable models. So I think yeah. we, we both have the, the, we both have hard problems. Right. That just yeah. where they are located yeah. is a little bit different. Well, and I, th- I think this, one of the things as I've just to kind of delve, uh, I mean, you know, it's more at surface level with, you know, popular level, level literature. One of the things that I'm coming to appreciate is that it would be very easy for me to take a uh, entirely rational view of Christianity and that what matters about Christianity is what I can think about consciously deciding everything. And in doing that, I miss that there is a character component of mm-hmm. Christianity that, you know, these, uh, I forget the fellow's name, but, you know, where you see the activity or you see evidence yep. of the activity before the activity carries out, that there's an aspect to where my character development matters mm-hmm. in how I live, not just right. when I become aware, then I'm thinking, by the time I become aware, I've already decided a fair bit. Yeah. And so if I'm only doing my conscious choice, I'm going to have a lot of problems. Right. But if I build my character so that the, the unconscious choice right. leads to the conscious choice, then I'm, you know, it's like yeah. there's places for really power transformative Christian growth that can happen, yeah. which is a lot of what Christ, or a lot of what the admonitions in scripture are. It's like, yeah. be this kind of person, not do these kind of things, if you will. So. Right. Well, you know, and, and that's, you know, Part of Matthew Stafford's, you know, Stanford's, mm-hmm. mo- you know, model is that, you know, that there are there is a mechanism by which the spirit can influence the mind, right. which can influence the brain. Uh, you know, and, and William Clem is talking about the same thing too, right? right. That, that we are we have free won't, right? We have yeah. the capacity for patience. You know, we can reason and deliberate. We have, you know, value judgment. We have character mm-hmm. development, and he's arguing that all these things are operating against the automatic processes of our brain and that we have to make deliberate volitional choices, Mm -hmm. you know, to do certain things and to create, again, these, that which is not automatic as an automatic process. So it's it's interesting how there's a lot of these ideas that, that intersect and overlap. Well, whether I have any choice or not, I'm going to wrap up here. Um, <laughs> any final comments before we head out? No, no. I appreciate your 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 you know your willingness to have this conversation with me. But I think, you know, in all seriousness, this is really a, an important topic, and yeah. I don't know that I have honestly done justice to it. It's mm-hmm. a complex topic. You know, I've done a crash course on on right. uh, on this issue, and I'll continue to study it. And um, but I think it's important again, for people watching the show to really give thought to this whole question and, and to, to do some reading mm-hmm. on this because uh, it's not a complex, it's not a simple question. It's a very complex question and it has wide ranging implications because, you know, uh, the more and more people in our culture that argue that really we don't have a choice in our behavior, it, it is going to, it is a dangerous idea mm-hmm. that will lead to and, and again, just because an idea is dangerous doesn't mean it's not true. But if it's a dangerous idea, we better make certain it's true before we start living out the implications. And so this is not a, a topic that's going to go away. Right.
Well, I really appreciate the discussion. Thanks. Thanks for bringing us to us today. I also want to thank you for joining us today on Star Cells and God. I want to encourage you to join the comments, join the discussion in the comments below. I want to remember to like this video. You can subscribe for more content. We release new episodes of Star Cells and God each Wednesday. They're available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I want to encourage you to share this video with friends. Go have them a discussion. Go have a discussion with them about it. And remember, the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.